I serve on the advisory team here at City Light Lincoln, and our advisory team consists of Mo and Austin and some gray hairs from here at the church, and also uh, Tom Rempel, Pastors Faith Bible Church here in town, and then Gavin and Chris, who are the head pastors at City Light Midtown. And it's a great group of men, we really enjoy each other, and it's encouraging to get together and hopefully give Mo and Austin some wisdom and insight as they think about the future. Let me ask a question to you this morning. How many of you have been to a high school class reunion? Not a lot, right? Because you, okay. Well, when it comes up, I encourage you to go, okay? Probably the first time will be your 10th or something like that. Maybe some of you getting a little close to that. Last week, I went to my high school class reunion. It wasn't my 10th. I bet you could guess that. Uh, it was the class of 1974, okay? That sounds, you know, back in the arc ages. But uh, it's been 43 years since I graduated, and nobody looks like they used to. In fact, I, one friend, Nate, I saw him, and I hadn't seen him for 30 years, and we looked at each other, and we're both examining who's balder than who, you know? <laughs> We had always been competitive with each other in school and everything, and I think I have three more hairs than he does. But we both had huge smiles when we saw each other. Another friend, John, invited, it was at his place, and he wanted me to come, so he he Facebooked me, and he said, you know, are you coming? I said, well, yeah, I'll be there. And he said, well, could you do something? We're messaging back and forth. I do social media, okay? So we're messaging back and forth, and he says, uh, would you pray before we eat? I said, sure. He said, would you also mention the 10 classmates that we've lost since we graduated? I said, sure. And I thought, well, how am I going to do that? And I remembered our class motto. This is our class motto. It went this way. I believe in the sun even when it's not shining. I believe in love even when I'm alone. And I believe in God even when he's silent. And I share with them how the times in my life that I've most experienced the silence of God is in the face of death. And then I share the names of our 10 classmates and prayed for their families and prayed for all of us. We're going to look at some people this morning that are struggling with the silence of God. And it's in the face of death. We're going to look at 12 people from John 20, 19 through 29 who are dealing with that in their lives. They're trying to cope with the loss of the most beautiful and intriguing person that anyone has ever met. I think it's hard for us to imagine how discouraged, despondent, broken, and fearful that they felt. Each of these men has been following Jesus for three years, and it's been the most incredible experience. I say it's kind of been like riding a roller coaster with blindfolds on. They've seen miracles that blew their minds. They've experienced love their hearts deeply craved. They've been filled with joy beyond their imagination. They've been captivated by his stories and his words. They've also been never more confused to understand what those words could really mean. They've seen how Jesus loved the unlovely. 
and pushed back against the religious elite. They thought he was the Messiah and that he would rule and they would rule with him. They had begun to dream dreams that they never thought possible. And now those dreams lie, lie shattered, broken at their feet. Can you feel their pain, confusion, their fear? Mo shared with us last week that early on earlier that day, that Easter morning, that Mary Magdalene had seen Jesus risen from the dead. And she ran back to tell the disciples, these very same men, and they didn't believe her. In Luke 24, 10 and 11, it says this, Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Before Jesus, women did not get much respect. Jesus has changed the state of women since he came. The disciples are now meeting on Easter evening in a locked room. They are scared, but Jesus provides peace to hiding people. Let's read chapter 20, verses 19 through 21. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so send I you. As these disciples are meeting together in this locked room for fear of the Jews, you can feel the negative energy in the room. They talk excitedly just above a whisper, not wanting to be found out. And as they are talking, Jesus appears right there in front of them, passing right through the locked door, just like he passed through the burial cloths when he was resurrected. What are his first words to them? Are they words of condemnation or criticism or correction? No. They are words of grace and encouragement. Peace be with you. The word peace here in Greek is the word Irene. Do you know any Irenes? It means wholeness or a state where everything that is essential is put together. In the Hebrew language, it's the word shalom. It doesn't just mean the absence of conflict, but it also means the abundance of comfort. It's not just that we're not fighting each other, but that we're fellowshipping together. That's what this word means. Paul writes in Philippians 4, 6, and 7, and he talks about anxiety. He says, have no anxiety about anything, but in prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which guard, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Anxiety means to be torn in a bunch of directions. Peace means to be whole. Jesus knows these men are torn in many directions. And he brings them peace. 
Jesus comes to these fractured, failing, faithless disciples, not scolding them, but giving them peace. And as he comes, he shows them his hands and his side where he has been wounded. He repeats himself and says, peace be with you. Be whole. And then he says, as the Father sent me, so I send you. He doesn't want them just to be whole just for themselves. He says, you broken men, I will make you whole. And you need to go tell other broken people how they can be whole. You've got to share my peace, my wholeness with broken people. I shared with you that six weeks ago I lost my mom to Alzheimer's. My mom was the first person I saw go from brokenness to wholeness. I was 16. She was 36. I had moved with my mom, my stepdad, and my two brothers from Denver, Colorado to Minden, Nebraska. I went from being a city kid to a farm boy. And I was kind of broken at the beginning there too. One day, our hired man... A cowboy named Dell was hanging out in a bar in Minden, and a farmer from nearby Gibbon, Nebraska, went into the bar, sat down with Dell, and shared with Dell how he could have peace through Jesus Christ. That farmer brought peace not only to Dell, but to our house, because Dell came home and talked to my mom and took her to Bible study with him. And there my mom found Jesus Christ. And my mom had a way of kind of selecting a person and picking them off and praying for them and getting in their face (laughs) until they could know Jesus. Guess who was first in line? Yours truly. (laughs) She went after me, and she kept begging me to come to Bible study with her, and finally I gave in. And there, two months later, I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I put my broken life in the hands of Jesus And he made me whole. Jesus sends broken people to other broken people to tell them how they can be made whole. If the disciples hadn't come out of their locked room, where would we be? How's your golf game? Where would you be this morning if those men, those broken men, hadn't come out of their room? This church family has grown Because each of us in our brokenness has been telling other broken people how they can be made whole. One of the greatest joys of life is to see a broken life made whole. You don't have to be a genius to do it. Just tell somebody else how he made you whole. Last week we got to experience the blessing of seeing 18 people right in the parking lot out here get baptized in a testimony that Jesus had gone into their brokenness and made them whole. And just like we shared earlier, 82 people watched by 2,000 in a park in Omaha right now are celebrating that they've been made whole. John 20, 22 and 23 says this, When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold the forgiveness from any, it is withheld. 
What does Jesus mean here? Jesus is telling the disciples to be in preparation to receive the Holy Spirit in the near future. He is also saying that when they go out for Jesus with the message that whoever receives this message of forgiveness will be forgiven. And whoever does not receive it will not be forgiven. Whenever I read something in Scripture that confuses me, kind of like these words can make, take me off in a number of different directions to try to understand them, the best thing for me to do is to look at another place in the Bible that talks about the same thing. And so if you turn over to Luke chapter 24, it's the same situation. Jesus is appearing on Easter evening to the disciples. Now it's worded differently. Why is it worded differently? Well, if you and I experienced the same event and we wrote about it, we would word it differently, wouldn't we? If the Gospels were exactly the same, I'd think that somebody was up to something. Wouldn't you? So we've got a different way it's worded. It says in in chapter 24, 45 through 49, that he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. This again is Jesus with the disciples on Easter evening. Here they are told to spread the message of forgiveness and to be prepared to receive the enabling power of the Holy Spirit of God. Jesus provides peace to hiding people. As we read on, we find out that not all the disciples were there when Jesus appeared among them. Judas, who had betrayed Christ, in guilt over what he had done, had gone and killed himself. So now there's only 11 disciples, but we read that one of those disciples was not there. Verses 24 and 25, now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. For some reason, we don't know, Thomas wasn't there. Maybe he was so frightened he'd gone and hid by himself. We just don't know. All we know is that the ten had an experience that Thomas didn't have. We do know that Thomas was probably the first person that they told about this experience. You would think that Thomas would want to be with his best buddies during this whole deal, but somehow he was gone. And the word of his best friends was not good enough for him. As we've been going through the Gospel of John, we've seen Thomas a couple of other times. In John chapter 11, the story of Lazarus, the raising of Lazarus, they are told that Lazarus is sick, and then they find out that he died. And Jesus says, we must go to Lazarus and to Mary and Martha. And when, when Thomas hears this, he knows that if they go to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, which is right close to Jerusalem, they're going back to the source of power and the central authority of the Jewish religion, which has been pushing back against the ministry of Jesus. They've been preaching and teaching in Galilee away from the capital. And this is what Thomas says when he hears they're going to go back. Let us also go 
that we may die with him. Thomas has a strong personality. He states he's willing to die with Christ. We hear from him again in John chapter 14. This is the night before Jesus goes to the cross. Jesus tells them that he's leaving and that they know the way to where he's going. And Thomas, in John 14, 5 and 6, Thomas says to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Again, we see his bold personality. He's not willing to just sit there and hear something he doesn't understand. He asks a question. Could you explain that to me, Lord? Because of him, we have this beautiful promise from Jesus. You see, Jesus is the way because without him, we're lost. Jesus is the truth because without him, we're deceived. Jesus is the life because without him, we're dead. Jesus says that without his way, his truth, and his life, no one can come to the Father except through him. When we meet Thomas here, he's a hurting unit. He's boldly pursued Jesus. He's asked him tough questions. He's been willing to die for Jesus. When he appears, when he hears that Jesus appears to the ten but not to him, he wants the same experience they had. He responds to the ten just the same way they did to Mary Magdalene and the woman who were at the tomb. In fact, Thomas responds even stronger. He says, unless he shows me what he showed you, I will never believe. Thomas doesn't know that just a week later, Jesus is going to appear to him. For all he knows, Jesus will never appear to him. Thomas has learned a name down through Christian history. You probably know it. Doubting Thomas. Sometimes they say, don't be a doubting Thomas. Have you ever struggled with doubt? I have, and I think all of us have as well. Doubt's an emotional reaction to extreme disappointment. Doubt comes in when someone we love dies, when a long-held desire is cruelly dashed time after time after time, when, a, when someone in your family or you has a serious illness, when your parents get divorced, when you get divorced. When you're lied about, when you're excluded from opportunity or relationship because of your race, when someone who you love cheats on you, when a child goes astray, when your friends turn on you, when all the other guys and girls you know are getting married, but there's nobody in your life. When you lose your job and you can't find another one. And when it seems like there's more days in the month than there is money. Some of those things I've experienced and some of them you've experienced. And that strong emotion of doubt starts to roll into our hearts. Doubt comes to live in your heart when God doesn't come through like you expected him to. This is where we find Thomas. But Jesus provides peace to hurting people. Eight days later, I'll read on in verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. 
Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put your, out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered, my Lord and my God. Now they're probably back in the same location behind the same locked door. And Jesus again appears amongst them as they are speaking. And he utters the same words. He doesn't pick Thomas out and say, you over there with the doubting heart. He says, peace be with you. Thomas, be whole. You're torn in so many directions. Be whole. And he calls Thomas over to investigate the evidence of the resurrection. Look at my hands. Look at my side. And Thomas, to his credit, immediately responds in faith. He says, my Lord and my God. Now he's called Jesus his Lord before because he's his master, his teacher. But he's saying, my Lord is my God. The first thing it tells us in John 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is the last pronunciation of the deity of Christ in the book of John. My Lord and my God. So whatever happened to Thomas? Thomas becomes a source of encouragement to all of us as we look back 2,000 years to his experience. In Christian history, Thomas eventually went to India to share the message of Christ. India is a land with over a million gods. And imagine the conviction in Thomas's heart because Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. There's not a million ways to God. There's only one. There's only one. Thomas also, by Christian history, we're told that Thomas died as a martyr for Christ in India. Remember what he said? Let us go and die with him. And so he did. And so he did. Today, the Toma Church is still alive. In India, it goes back to Thomas. The fact that these scared, timid disciples were so radically changed that the reality of the resurrection was so real in their lives is a powerful proof for the validity of the message of Jesus. These men who had been hiding out, confused, fearful, and broken, went to the world with the gospel. And by the sheer power of love, changed the course of human history. Do you think they got together and concocted a lie in that locked room? Hey guys, let's just tell them all this. And then they went out and died separately professing that message that Jesus had been resurrected from the dead and he was the only way to find true peace. I don't think they made a lie. Made up a lie. They knew the truth. They knew that Jesus provides peace to hurting people. I told you earlier that we'd look at 12 people who are dealing with the death of Jesus. First, we looked at 10. Then we looked at Thomas, one. Well, do your math here. 10, one, that's only 11. Who's the 12th person? Well, let's read on. 
Verse 29. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Who's the twelfth person? Hopefully, you. This is a passage of scripture that jumps off the page because it's talking about me and you. You see, we've never seen the physical representation of Christ or seen Christ literally risen from the dead physically in front of us. We have to believe off the words of these disciples. We are the 12th person. Jesus provides peace to hoping people. It says that we're blessed. That's that peace that he's talking about, the blessing of being whole. And we have to believe since Jesus ascended into heaven on the words of these men. Romans eight twenty four and 25, Paul writes this, For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Peter writes, Peter, who was one of the eleven in the room, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We believe because we've found that what Jesus claimed to be was true. And what he did in the gospel's record really happened. The gospels are historically reliable documents. Many have attempted to disprove the resurrection. Some of the foremost have gone and tried to write about it. And they found themselves believing it when they tried to disprove it. Josh McDowell, Lee Strobel, Frank Morrison have all written books about their pursuit of disproving the resurrection and they came up believing. We also believe the story of Jesus because we've seen lives literally changed. In my 45 years as a follower of Jesus, I've observed the transformation of a thousand or more lives. I've even I've known people or I've heard their testimony. People have told me how they have come to know Christ and it's changed the trajectory of their lives. I'm not saying that Christianity is true because it works. I'm saying it works because it's true. How about you? Are you struggling like our friend Thomas with doubt? One of the points of deepest struggle in my life came in 1993 when my wife and I found out that our fourth child would die right after he was born. He had a brain defect. Our little boy Jonathan was born without a brain. Six hours after he was born, he died right here in my arms. He went from the arms of his earthly father to the arms of his heavenly father. My wife Sandy had fallen asleep and he gasped a couple times and he passed. We named him Jonathan because Jonathan means God's gracious gift. And he's been a gift to us to understand the pain of other people. Right after he passed, I went to the nurse's station. I said, could you get me a Bible? 
because in our rush to get to the hospital, I hadn't grabbed my Bible. And they found me one eventually, brought it in, and I went to open it up, and I wanted to read Psalm 23, because in Psalm 23 it says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, thou art with me. I fear no evil, thou art with me. And I wanted to read those words. But I turned to Psalm 22, and I started reading. And it says this, verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's exactly what I felt. And I remembered how Jesus himself on the cross uttered those very same words. And all of a sudden I knew that the father in heaven who had lost his son knew exactly how I felt. And I knew a little bit more about what he felt in losing a son. He knew my pain. He didn't give me an explanation. He stepped with his pain into my life and began to heal me. When we see the disciples in this story, Jesus doesn't give them an explanation. He says, look at my hands. Look at my side. Oh, we want an explanation. But more so, we want to know that God knows we hurt. Are you struggling today with doubt over one of the things I spoke of earlier or something else? He knows your pain. You see, Jesus is the wounded healer. He steps into the sin that I've committed and the sin that's been committed against me and he brings his healing. Jesus provides peace to hiding people. He calls us, the scared, to come out of the closet with courage. Jesus provides peace to hurting people. He calls us, the scarred, to come out of confusion with conviction. Jesus provides peace to hoping people. He calls the scorned, those of us who follow Christ, to come out of the crowd with commitment. So where are you today? Are you struggling with doubt in any area of your life? Are you hiding, hurting, or seeking to hope, just trying? Jesus will meet you in your doubt and give you his peace. Be honest with him like Thomas was. Don't pretend. He knows where your heart's at. Be like Thomas and just lay it out in front of him. And he will step into your pain with his woundedness. In Isaiah chapter 53, it's a beautiful, beautiful chapter in the Bible. Isaiah, 600 years before Christ comes, reveals this prophecy. And this is what he says. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I don't know where you're at this morning. Have you recognized in your own heart and life that Jesus came and was wounded for you? He took the penalty that each one of us deserved and took it on himself. 
And he steps into your pain and he wants to make you whole. All you've got to do is put your faith and trust in him. And for those of us this morning that follow him, just when you put your faith in Christ at the beginning of your Christian life, all your problems did not magically float away, did they? But he in his woundedness wants to step into the pain of your life and give you peace. Let's close in prayer.